0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 27th of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. How are you feeling? (laughs) Can you put it into words? Nope. I cannot put this into words. A year ago she was tending bar in New York. Today she's on the verge of being the youngest woman ever elected to US Congress. Is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez an outlier or the future of the Democratic Party? My guests Linda Yu and Somnath Batabail will be discussing this and the day's other top stories including Angela Merkel's ongoing scramble to keep her coalition together, China's order of battle for Trump's trade war, and if technology can make Indian cows more productive and less noxious, what else should it fix? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Linda Yu, broadcaster, economist and the author of The Great Economists, The Thinkers Who Change the World and How Their Ideas Can Help Us Today, and Somnath Batabail, lecturer in Media and Development and International Journalism at SOAS. Welcome both. First of all, if, and this is a large if, with snow on its upper summits, there is any consolation to be wrung from the fact of Donald Trump's occupation of the White House, it is in the invigorating effect his presidency is having on pretty much everything he detests. The Greatest example is yesterday's Democratic primary in New York, where veteran Joe Crowley, who has sat in Congress since Bill Clinton was president, was unloaded by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a 28-year-old former Bernie Sanders volunteer of Puerto Rican descent. She will now almost certainly become the youngest woman ever elected to Congress in the November midterms. Though before anyone gets too excited, she won't be old enough to run for president until the 2028 election. Um... Linda, is this part of the Trump effect? Or put another way, is there any way she would have won or even run if Hillary Clinton was president?
1: Oh, that's a very good question. I think that uh, Trump's victory has certainly pushed, especially Hillary Clinton's supporter. She's, in fact, encouraged more uh, women to run for office. But I would think that part of the reason why she's won remember, she was a Bernie Sanders supporter. She actually stands to the left of the current Democratic incumbent Indeed. who she beat in the primary. But this happened before. So you may recall a few years ago, Eric Cantor, who was the Republican House majority leader, for the very first time in history, a sitting House majority leader. In fact, he's one of the most senior people in the Republican Party. He lost his primary to a Tea Party candidate, an academic who had never had any political experience. So that person sat further to the right of Eric Cantor and now that representative i met him before sits in congress so i wonder if what happened to the right is now happening to the left and we're seeing this trend in the democratic party not just because of trump but also because of bernie sanders and this movement that he seemed to represent which is a a splitting apart in a sense of the democratic party from the centrists the bill clintons the hillary clintons towards the Sanders, the more anti-status quo um, supporters.
0: Somnath, if if that is the case, if it turns out that um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is not an outlier, but she is indicative of a shift within the Democratic Party, are there grounds for concern there? If, as Linda suggests, the Democratic Party ends up getting dragged left in much the same way that the Republicans in recent years have been dragged right and leaves a vacant centre ground, as we've seen in Europe, especially in the last few years, that doesn't always result in happy outcomes,
2: true. But you know, I'm um, cautious of how this, uh, you know, how to understand this particular result. First, you have we have to see this is NYC, Bronx, and the Queens. You know, it's not Indeed somewhere. So, so you know one have to, has to be careful. Uh, also, this is not the first time this has happened. 1992, uh, the first Hispanic woman was elected from this particular place. Twenty. 20- Years before that, 1972, 31-year-old Elizabeth was elected. So this is not a, something which is new and just, you know, And uh, we have this kind of tendency now, anything that happens in America is because of Trump. So I, I just want to be slightly cautious. Mm-hmm. But w- what was interesting to me in this particular election and reading about it and I'm trying to understand it is that big money can be defeated. The establishment came with 10 times more money than Cortes, but grassroots work, uh, very aggressive campaigning and aggressively debating the mainstream candidates and uh, and, uh, trying to get together via Internet and social uh, forums, grassroots organizations that it can have as big an effect as money has.
0: Uh, Linda, one thing that is uh, an unarguable trend, and some that's quite right in in pointing out that, you know, this may just be a particularly localised portion, not even just to New York, but to that particular portion of New York. Uh, But record numbers of women are running in November. Now, it might easily be argued that that would be happening if they were being encouraged by the fact of a female president. But... Again, would we want to hazard a guess as to what proportion of what is being called the pink wave has been inspired because Donald Trump is president?
1: I think part of it must be attributed to that. Certainly, that was one of the messages that Hillary Clinton kept broadcasting after she emerged from, the, I'm sure, the depths of depression that must have uh, after her loss. And I think, but I think part of it is also that women, in a sense, in American politics, have always been there. But it's about getting that slight push to take the step to become the candidate, rather than say working behind the scenes. So I don't think we can underestimate the effect that have on the brink of having a female male president, may have led some of these women um, to think about taking the plunge themselves. And of course, this is in the wider debate about women taking leadership positions. Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, has had uh, many other books that either support or dispute that view. But if you look around the world, um, more women, I think, are coming into leadership positions. Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand is one example. And I think certainly others are running. So I would say that in this current political environment, the sense of a need for change um, is probably stronger than it has been in previous administrations. And I think part of that change is going to be related to not having um, when you expected to have and then you didn't get America's first female president. That must play a role.
0: OK, well, let's move on now and look at the travails in battling, if not outright beleaguering, a rather more established political figure. German Chancellor Angela Merkel will attend the imminent meeting of the European Council beginning tomorrow, worried that if she can't come back with some sort of deal which eases Germany's burden vis-à-vis ongoing migration crises, etc., her governing coalition may split. Interior Minister Horst Seehofer, head of Merkel's coalition partners, partners may be inverted commas there, the CSU, has hinted that he might... Introduce border controls, which might also threaten the Schengen Agreement. Um, Somnath, Merkel is kind of caught here. But why doesn't she? Why doesn't she just sack Seehofer? Is he bluffing? Um, <laughs> difficult one again. Um, why is
2: Boris not being sacked? Either? Is he bluffing? So uh, at the moment, what I can see is that CSU. If you look at the opinion polls. They would be absolutely not ready for elections. You know, their opinion polls are really, really low. So it could be taken that Seehofer is pushing Merkel towards some kind of deal. And even if she doesn't get a larger European deal, she might be trying to have to- bilateral treaties. Are could be on the cards. So it all depends on how the Sunday meeting with the CSU goes. Uh, but um, again, you know, he has always been a thorn in her side for a long for a very long time but this is also a partnership which goes back 70 years so it might not be that easily broken so loads of ifs and buts but Merkel like the German football coach is on a very tricky (laughs) tricky wicket shall I say to bring in a cricket metaphor a
0: a football coach (laughs) on a sticky wicket yeah we we understand I think what you mean there but yes it is weird to think that Merkel now has the second most precarious job uh, in Germany Um, Linda Let's, let's take Horst Seehofer at his word here, and supposing he does go ahead and introduce border controls or attempt to, I suspect you'd have to sack him if he tried that, but would there necessarily be anything wrong with that?
1: I think it would violate this free movement of people that's integral to the way the single market works. It's one of the four freedoms. But let's be, I think, quite um, political about this. The single market is an economic construct. So you need to have free movement of people, the Europeans believed, in order to have free movement of goods, free movement of services, Mm -hmm. free movement of capital. But what Angela Merkel has faced over the past three years or so is a migrant influx. Her open-door policy towards migrants has put a lot of pressure on her politically, on her party politically. And it's one of the reasons is thought the AFD, the far right, has entered parliament and really is substantial numbers for the first time. So the problem with putting in any type of migrant controls is exactly that. You're between a hard, a rock and a hard place. So on the one hand, you want to stick to your principles. On the other hand, clearly, the political pressures are significant. But she did hammer out, it's thought, a compromise with Emmanuel Macron ahead of the summit. And what they've agreed is that... Macron is also um, interested in controlling migration. So the, the rough deal, it looks like they have, is that any migrant who comes in, the first country in which they register would have to keep them. So if a migrant came and landed on the shores of France and wanted to move to Germany, then Germany could turn them away at the border. But the difficulty here is that it violates Schengen, which is this free trade area. But Macron, it seems, conceded this because he wanted in return from Merkel a greater push for European integration. So what he got in return was the promise of a euro area budget by about 2021 and reinsurance for deposits across the eurozone. So Macron's big vision is an integrated eurozone. And it looks like, He has his own migration pressures, too. They may be sacrificing some of this freedom to get there. But I would say, on the whole, that is a politically difficult topic, which, if they can resolve it, might actually pave the way for, say, other countries... I don't know, Britain and Brexit, (laughs) to look at migration controls as part of the access to the single market.
0: I mean, Somnath, do you get the sense that that is where it is now heading, that migration controls, border controls, even within Schengen, if it goes on existing, are going to become more acceptable? Is this this politicians realising that whatever they may have personally thought or believed about uh, the virtues of free movement of people, quite a lot of their voters, for whatever reason, are not keen on the idea?
2: Yeah, sadly, a democracy will um, prevail here over technocrats sitting in Brussels. Very sadly, in this particular moment, <clears throat> I mean, Brexit was the, I mean, was one of the warning signals to Europe that this will not carry on, and we have given up, or tra- are willing to give up our travel visas to twenty seven countries um, in Europe. The, the English are so. What's whatever is happening in most of the. Western European countries, the way the election results are coming up, the parties which are coming up, the right-of-center leaders and their immigration uh, conversation. Yes, we are moving towards something which will be far more controlled, than what was allowed in the Schengen uh, visa system.
0: Hey, L- Linda, the, w- the weird variable that uh, Merkel will face at this summit is, of course, the presence of a new Italian government, which is uh, quite flagrantly, stridently and obviously anti-immigrant. They're not even bothering to try and describe it. Describe it? Disguise it was the word I wanted. Um, does that weirdly give her some extra room for manoeuvre? Does she potentially find an unlikely ally uh, in Italy? Because the the, the the point that she is obviously able to make is that Germany alone among non-Mediterranean European countries, has actually stepped up and has actually made an effort uh, to take on not just its own share of, of the migrant influx, but vastly more than its share of the migrant influx. Does she perhaps have an unlikely ally here in, sp- in seeking to spread the load?
1: I think she probably does, if France and Italy both support this proposal um, or support some degree of modification of Schengen, I think that would go a long way in terms of uh, pushing it forward. but I think Italy is going to be an uneasy bedfellow. So, of course, the Five Star Movement and the Northern League are stridently anti-migrant. And, of course, um, the Northern League has its name because their original position <laughs> is they wanted Southern Italy to be separated from Northern Italy. And so they have very deep roots um, they are, they in this next respect. They are next-level xenophobes. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of... But they're also very anti-Euro. So this deal that I described between Macron and Merkel, I'm not sure the Italians would actually support, which is why at this EU, summit, there's going to be a number of things, a number of things that they'll have to trade, horse trading, to get to some degree of uh, of compromise on, I think, on migration that could, uh, that would satisfy Merkel's own party and her coalition partner. Remember, it's a fragile coalition, took ages to put together. It's only been in existence for a few months. Um, so I think um, that's also why I think this EU summit, um, I'm afraid Brexit isn't going to be top of the agenda, given everything else that they have going on.
0: OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Somnath Batabayal and Linda Yu. Coming up next, the latest evidenced against Donald Trump's proposition that trade wars are good and easy to win.
2: Tune in to the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24 weekdays at 2200 London time. We unpack the stories that have been dominating the discussion in Europe and North America and set the agenda for a new day in Asia. The show features regular insights and analysis from Monocle's bureau in Toronto and New York, special guests there and across the Americas, as well as experts and analysts at our studios in London. Whether it's industry-focused reports on anything from art and architecture to business and entertainment, or a light-hearted guide to how to spend the perfect weekend in a great city somewhere in the world, you're in good hands. Monocle's network of global correspondents are your guides. Join our team every weekday for the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24.
0: You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Miller. Still with me are Linda Yu and Somnath Batabayal. Now, deliberately or otherwise, Donald Trump's administration makes it desperately difficult to focus on any one thing much longer than the president himself does, with the consequence that something which seemed like, and indeed was, huge news a matter of weeks ago feels like something now that happened around the time of Rock Around the Clock. Uh, but Trump's trade war with China is ongoing and suggestions are emerging regarding China's plans for defending itself. State media suggests that China China could or should subsidise companies which incur losses as a result. Um, Linda, this plan is emerging from the editorial pages of the Global Times, which is not a journal, uh, how to put it, known for its independence of thought. Um, should we assume that this suggestion has come from on high?
1: Probably. Um, I think this is probably a signal that in this war, the the way the Chinese are going to battle um, these terrorists are, is investment uh, restrictions the Americans are uh, implementing and proposing is that they are going to subsidize companies. And of course, this is one of the things you can do when you are a communist state and you actually own all of the state-owned banks. But I think this is also why trade wars ultimately are economically not very uh, efficient. And I think the reason why we're getting this hint the Chinese are going to do this is because they... Feel that well, this is actually a statement reportedly um, on Twitter. So take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> from a Chinese official who said that um, because Trump appears crazy to the rest of the world, all we have to do is to appear sane. And so by positioning their subsidies, which by the way have come under heavy criticism by not just Americans, but Mm. also by Europeans in terms of distorting competition. They're almost taking this opportunity to say, well, we're doing this because of America's trade policies, rather than the fact that they have subsidized for a long time companies in order to make them globally competitive, including in key things like energy, which has been a constant source of criticism by the European Union. So I think in a slightly... uh, Strategic way, shall we describe it, if you want to draw battle lines, Trump has almost given them an excuse to justify um, their subsidies, which are really not, uh, shouldn't really be happening in terms of if you wanted a, a free uh, trading system.
0: We were talking at the the top of the show about Trump's inadvertent effects on on domestic politics in the United States. Is this an inadvertent effect he's having in international diplomacy as well? As Linda says, that if you run up against uh, Trump in some conflict or other, as long as you just look sane and reasonable, whether or not you're actually being sane and reasonable, uh, you're kind of likely to come out on top yeah I think it's a brilliant description of the times that we are in. You just have to
2: keep calm and say not much, and you'll appear the nicer person. but it's also you know the fight is between the world's biggest economy and the second biggest economy. It doesn't augur very well. You also have fight between a strong man i mean if I can perhaps not the right way to describe the Chinese president, but he's almost complete control over the party and the party party machinery at the moment and the other and on Trump, who's almost indescribable. So you don't know which way this will go. But America is on a sticky wicket. I don't know why I keep on using cricketing <laughs> metaphors all the time, because, as Lindy just pointed out, you know, here is a democratic nation which is outraged by the president and what he is doing. Well, on the other hand, you have a part, well-oiled party machine with long-term goals. China has a clear policy of how it wants to achieve trade dominance Uh, dominance in uh, artificial intelligence. By 2025, they have a clear plan. While America, being a democracy, functions very differently. So actually, Trump has taken on a very difficult rival. And you're also messing with the world's supply chain.
0: Well, indeed so. But, Linda, I I guess it's another part of the Trump effect that another thing that gets missed uh, because it's Donald Trump and because it's Donald Trump blustering and blundering in the way that he does uh, is any possibility that the United States might actually have a case. And this idea that America has of restricting foreign investment in tech companies isn't necessarily a bad one.
1: I think it's good to scrutinize foreign investment if you're unsure if the source of the investment is coming from another sovereign state. So let's be very clear. Most investment are things like mergers and acquisitions. So if you had another country taking over a private industry, there are competition concerns. And one of the um, perennial criticisms of the Chinese is that it's unclear what the source of financing is for a number of their deals. So I think – but. America already has a body that does that. It's in the Senate. It's called the Foreign Investment Committee. So the question is whether or not the additional um, uh, targeted focus by the Trump administration, which is on the high-tech area, in the high-tech areas that China is trying to promote in it's made in China 2025 plan, whether that just seems too much of a part of a trade war rather than an ongoing review of foreign investment, which the Americans have done since the 1980s when Japan started to um, invest. And I think that's the problem. But the the, the challenge around America's policies are it's always very unclear whether or not it matters that they're so targeting a particular area because, in other words, you get the uh, rhetoric and then you get the underlying policy. And then you look at the two and you say, well, why don't you just justify using the underlying (laughs) policy rather than having all of this sort of uh, rhetoric, which really, I think, causes a lot of people to turn against uh, the policy. We've seen it here. We've also seen it um, in other areas. So you know, should, they, should there be scrutiny? Yes. Is high tech an area where you have dual use? Yes. Do a source of financing matter? Yes. Do you, should you have a level playing field? Yes. I think all of these things are things that you could probably do. The one thing you shouldn't do is what President Trump has just tweeted about Harley Davidson, which is <laughs> if, you, if you, because of the terrorist move production out of the US, I'm going to tax you. There's no underlying policy that would justify that.
0: Okay, well, there's a couple more stories I did want to take a look at tonight, one of which is what is being called or referred to or thought of as the Internet of Cows. Uh, This is a new software tool developed by India's National Dairy Development Board. It helps balance the diet of Indian cattle, which will lead, hopefully, to an increase in the production of milk and a decrease in the production of methane. The tool is called, presumably as a stopgap measure, while the perfect pun is worked on, the Information Network on Animal Productivity and Health, or INAF. Which is not catchy at all. Uh, it is obviously a brilliant idea and demonstrates that, de- despite all appearances, an app or technological fix for absolutely everything has not quite yet been developed. Um, Somnath, first of all, to this thing itself, and there must be a better name for it than that. I, I, I got halfway to somewhere with a shock of the gnu idea, or there's a there's a herd through the grapevine. Anyway, uh, we could <laughs> we, we could be here sometime. Never mind the bullocks. That's a, that's a, 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 another. One. Um, is, is this actually going to work? Well, you know, we have about a population of
2: 1.6 billion uh, human population. I wish there was a diet plan for uh, about <laughs> 500 million of us. Uh, so, so, uh, uh, is it actually going to work? No. Um, as, a, as, a, as an app... <laughs> Spoiler alert. No, no, no. As an app, it's brilliant. It's great. Uh, monitor cows. I mean, everyone is interested in cows. Everyone in India, the politicians, uh, the Hindu nationalists, we're all obsessed with the cow. Um but why doesn't it work? Um, it's great to give um, cows in India and everywhere else a balanced That European cows are the most subsidised ever when we're talking about subsidies. But uh, the problem will be implementation. Uh, cows, as you know, Andrew, you've been to India, they're everywhere. They're uncontrollable uh, in, in all over our metro cities, all over our villages. problem is farmers, how do they access the food we are talking about? This is very centrally controlled. And India with its large population, uh, seventh largest uh, country in the world in, in just area size, it will be almost impossible to control this centrally and there's no other way to do this. So. Yes, as a uh, you know, if you're a technological uh, determinant kind of position, if you take that position, perhaps you can celebrate as you are. But <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm very happy with the lessening of methane methane gas. That's that's fantastic. Uh, you know, then uh, for environment and for the citizens living there. But otherwise, as a um, as a solution to anything much, no, it won't. Next year, you won't hear about this.
0: Linda, is there a similar problem with China as well, that whatever brilliant idea you might have for a technological fix to something, you are then going to have to figure out how to implement this brilliant technological fix across this absolutely enormous country and enormous population?
1: Yes, and I think there's um, it's also the issue for uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So quite a lot of tech, especially in agriculture, is there, but it's not used because it's not disseminated, and farmers don't know how to do things like crop rotation or, in this case, feed cows the right thing so they don't fart too much. Um, <laughs> I've just cut to the chase there. <laughs> um, so I think the, the rest, but of, the, the rest <laughs> of us were trying to maintain some sort of tone, but you just you just went there. Um, But I think one of the things that makes me, well, that's appealing about tech to me is that some things can go viral, not just cat videos. Is it possible to make this particular app go viral? So maybe, maybe a few million or tens of million or India's case, a billion people (laughs) take it
0: up. Well, I I did want to look finally at at what I guess is sort of a technological solution, uh, though it's it's a fairly old school one. This is is not a mobile phone app. Um, This is amazing. This This is the most... Most passive-aggressive strategic maneuver or diplomatic maneuver I've ever heard of. This is this is the diplomatic equivalent, I think, of just leaving post-it notes on on the milk in the fridge. Um, Saudi Arabia, uh, which doesn't get on with Qatar, we know this. Um, but it has a border with Qatar. Saudi Arabia wishes to do away with that. Apparently, they want to turn that into a canal, um, and just for the fun of it, as well, they're going to build a nuclear waste dump uh, along one side of it. They appear to be serious about this. Sobnath, is this does this seem like something that's actually going to happen to you? I mean, it's, it's I guess it's not any less weirder than those sort of palm tree shaped island um, islands you know covered in hotels and villas being built off the coast of Dubai. Well, I mean, they have apparently got nine
2: local firms to uh, bid for this uh, construction. But economically, it doesn't make any sense because it's far away from everywhere. It's closing off one side of it, which is Qatar. Um, So um, this can only be for what I can say security reasons, not economic reasons. And it's difficult to get uh, private companies interested in building uh, something like this quite massive when there is no... um, not necessarily a profit motive behind it. So we can only think that the state will have to sponsor it. But as you, um, I mean, to reiterate perhaps what you didn't say, is uh, it's a harebrained idea.
0: Uh, Linda, do you think they're serious? I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of hoping they just go, you know, go, I, just go wild, fill it full of sharks and crocodiles. I mean, you know, are, are they actually going to do this?
1: I hope not, um, but I guess it's one of those. It's a, it's, it's a, it is a passive aggressive escalation of the tensions between Saudi and um, Qatar, and I think you know I was thinking over the legality of it if they build it on Saudi land. And the state pays for it, um, and they dump nuclear waste, which is you know, not, on their own land, just despite the um, Qataris. I find that pretty extraordinary. Um, I suppose you know the Qataris could retaliate and uh, dump their uh, crocodiles and things and <laughs> next to it. Well, but I, I'm I, not d- sure I'm, I don't foreign policy is what it's descending into. <laughs> I, I,
0: off the top of my head, I'm not sure if the crocodile is native or indigenous to Qatar, but they could, they could certainly afford to buy some.
1: They could import some. I know yeah, this is, really is a, but this
0: to. is a, this is amazing. It's, it's like one of those things you read about where like two neighbors have sued each other into bankruptcy over three inches of somebody's driveway. It's absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. We will keep an eye on that story because it's On the one hand, obviously deeply regrettable and not to be encouraged and, on the other hand, completely hilarious, which is the best kind of story. Um, Thank you very much both for joining us, Linda Yu and Somnath Batabayal. Today's edition of Midori House was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Amber Roberts. Our studio manager was Cassie Galpin. Music next at 1900, The Entrepreneurs with Matt Alagaya. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'll be your host for that as well. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew. Mullet, thanks for listening.